I knew I was embarking on what would be the battle of my life and it shook me to my absolute core. But I just knew that I either get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable or resign to the painstaking existence, if you can even call it that, that my eating disorder permitted. Hi, I'm your host, Imogen Barnes, an inspired mental health advocate, eating disorder survivor, and your most fierce recovery companion. You're listening to Empowered, a powerment podcast that celebrates demolishing your limiting belief systems, inspires growth, and focuses on integrating your values into your goals and behaviours. If you're ready to be motivated, educated, and inspired to start your journey to recovery, whatever form that takes, listen in and prepare to be empowered. Hello and welcome to what is my very first podcast episode. Ah, I'm so excited. I am literally smiling ear to ear. I'm not sure if you can capture that through your headphones, but that is definitely what's happening. I am truly projecting all the happy vibes into the universe right now, and I hope you catch them. Okie dokie. So you may already know a little bit about me, but I will give you a brief introduction so that we can get better acquainted. So... As you would have heard, my name is Imogen, but a lot of people know me by Imi, and I live on the beautiful far north coast of Australia, and at the moment I'm balancing university, part-time work, and content creation slash mental health advocacy, and I love everything to do with being outside and spending time with the people I love. At the moment, that's a bit it looks a bit different because of COVID, obviously. Um, I've been doing some little things like staying out in the sunshine, trying to get some vitamin D happening. I also got roller skates as a 21st birthday present. I know, 21. Is it 21 or 12? I definitely feel like it's the latter. But anyway, I got some roller skates for my 21st and I've been riding them. Um, not always riding, sometimes definitely rolling around on the ground, but you know, trying to ride. And yeah, we've been adapting to this new COVID, COVID-imposed ways of life. Anyway, you can also check out my Instagram page. So the handle is at im, so I am underscore powering. And that is where my advocacy dreams really came to life. So im, my personal, my username, sorry, can be interpreted in a few ways. Um, im, as in Imogen, powering is the first way that it can be interpreted. So this version kind of pays tribute to my personal journey of survival and overcoming mental health issues. It can also be interpreted as I'm, so the inclusive contraction short for I am, as in I'm powering. And this reminds us all that we are all possessive of the potential to transform our pain into power. And of course, empowering is an empowering play on words. Um, Empowering slash empowered, so this podcast, exists as the platform I wished I had access to whilst navigating the early stages of my mental illness, especially when I was overwhelmed with a sense of bitter isolation and hopelessness. I endeavour to harness the power of lived experience here to unite us as fellow warriors to evolve, grow and kind of power on together. I feel this overwhelming sense of passion and almost a sense of responsibility to take on the role of hope instiller and fellow fighter that I long to walk alongside throughout particularly the early stages of my journey. And I suppose I just really want to curate a safe space to foster healing, candid authenticity, and empower recovery that transforms pain into power. 
So that leads me to the nature of this first solo cast. With a podcast that I intend to center around self-improvement, healing, inspiration, recovery, and authenticity, I feel it's only natural to first share my personal story of survival. I'm going to launch into the tales of how I am overcoming my eating disorder and other mental health struggles to, I suppose, put into context the driving force behind my hope-instilling advocacy ambitions. And I guess sharing my story does represent me reclaiming my life rather than running from my past. I think sharing is really healing and it provides you with this sense of closure and also power. Hearing it's going to get better from support systems when you're navigating anything really difficult is one thing, but hearing it's going to get better from someone who's actually proving that statement correct themselves, I just think is all the more comforting. Of course, I'm going to exercise every degree of caution I possibly can when I tell my story. I will not be, nor will I ever for that matter, be sharing numbers, figures or explicit detail that pertains to my struggles. However, I would like to seize this opportunity to include a content warning for this episode. I am going to discuss themes surrounding general mental distress, disordered eating, hospitalisation and treatment, which will be distressing for some listeners. If this is difficult subject matter for you, I definitely encourage, if you're feeling vulnerable, to proceed with caution, and I will leave some links to support systems in the show notes that you can access if this triggers anything for you. I also want to make the disclaimer that your personal experience will differ from mine in varying ways, and this is inevitable. However, it doesn't serve to illegitimize either of our experiences, It merely reminds us of the fact that no two mental illnesses or recovery journeys will present the same. My experience is by no means the hallmark eating disorder experience, nor does it represent some kind of validity benchmark. Validation in the context of all suffering is universal and ever-present. Now, with all of this on the table, here is my personal story of survival. So I'm in recovery from anorexia nervosa, OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder, and depression. But I'm going to speak to my experience with my eating disorder most in this episode with the intention of further exploring my OCD and depression in future episodes. Please remember though, I am not a doctor or a therapist or any kind of treatment professional. The only authority I have over these topics is that of my lived experience. This is definitely not me advising you how to navigate your own struggles or insinuating that your experience should in any way mimic that of mine. And full candid disclosure, I am not fully recovered yet. I still have a ways to go with regard to my own healing. I still have to consciously fight my mind and all the disordered neural pathways that I spent years reinforcing and strengthening. But I don't want this to stop me from pursuing my purpose and passions. Okay, so where do I start? Uh, I feel like my childhood. (laughs) That's a good introduction point. I had a really, really dreamy childhood. I have two phenomenal sisters and we're basically joined at the hip. I have my equally phenomenal parents and I am super, super close with them. And growing up, some anxious tendencies aside, I was the happiest kid I was always outside, I was outgoing, I had incredible friends, and I was constantly surrounded by love. I first developed OCD when I was 10 years old. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with OCD, it is an anxiety disorder that revolves around obsessions 
And these are anxiety-inducing thoughts and compulsions, which are these repetitive behaviours. My OCD centred itself around the themes of harm and then later contamination. When I was 10, I was petrified. Something terrible was going to happen to my family members. And I developed compulsions pertaining to this obsession that, in the short term, alleviated my anxiety, but in the long term, really reinforced it. I was compelled to recite certain phrases, to collect random objects, to confess specific intrusive thoughts, and I just, I couldn't function and I couldn't sleep without my mum. OCD and eating disorders work in similar ways in that sufferers are presented with anxieties related to an obsession that they have, which they're then compelled to perform certain repetitive behaviours to seek relief from. Unfortunately, though, when you use compulsions to manage your anxiety in the context of OCD and eating disorders, you trade short-term relief for what turns into long-term suffering. Your compulsions give you the mere illusion of control and actually end up controlling you. The only major intervention, however, that I received as a 10-year-old was some psychotherapy and management from my general practitioner, and this did keep me mostly happy and well until the age of 13. This is when my anxiety and OCD got particularly out of hand. I was too terrified to so much as leave the house and my ability to engage in life was being depleted. It was then that I was referred to a psychiatrist for management. I started seeing a psychologist. I started taking medication and I also started engaging in exposure response prevention, ERP, which is a behavioral therapy aimed at reducing the severity of OCD symptoms. And the combination of OCD behavioral therapy, so ERP, and the medication that I started taking really contained my OCD symptoms for a while. And I learned to sit with anxiety and grew my behavioral management toolbox to better cope with my condition. And I lived in relative peace again until the age of 16, when once again, my OCD unfortunately got the better of me. I was so debilitated and exhausted this time. I thought about my obsessions and compulsions literally around the clock. I was missing school. I couldn't touch people or certain objects out of an intense fear of becoming contaminated. And I just didn't feel like my life was worth living. As you can imagine, it's quite taxing to be so consumed with anxiety so much of the time with little reprieve. And that's probably why I developed depression around this time as well. With all this taken into consideration and my complete inability to function, my psychiatrist decided a medication change would stand as my best chance at offering me some lasting relief and an enhanced quality of life. Now, not everyone with an eating disorder is able to pinpoint a specific moment in time they held this newfound awareness pertaining to their body that may have sparked this creation of a fixation, but the following experience did so for me. So my psychiatrist, when discussing the potential side effects related to the medication change I was about to embark on, warned me to quote-unquote watch my weight. Now that comment was completely harmlessly intended, but suddenly I sensed complete overwhelm and once again this lack of control. I decided the only appropriate action to take in order to regain the control over my body that I suddenly sensed was to consciously start restricting my food intake and increasing the movement that my body performed. And just like that, 
I had this new obsession paired with new compulsions that I used to alleviate the anxiety that it caused me. And really, really quickly, I became completely entrenched in my eating disorder. For the first time in my life, I became fixated on my weight, which I'd started to monitor to measure any fluctuations upwards that I lived in sudden fear of. I began slowly restricting my foods and adopted certain tracking behaviours regarding the energy that I consumed. I obsessively checked my body for alterations I could potentially monitor in the mirror, and I started being exceptionally repetitive and structured in the way that I nourished myself. It's probably worth saying, in order to just quickly dismantle the stereotypes associated with the development of eating disorders, that before this time, I didn't suffer from cripplingly bad body image or even a lack of confidence, at least not more so than your average teen. I'd never been one to crash diet or really buy into diet culture messaging. And for the record, I loved food. I still do. So much so that I thought I would be prevented from ever falling victim to atypical eating patterns. However, unfortunately, that is just not how it works. And also, it is a really, really huge societal misconception that all eating disorders start out as a diet that takes a turn for the worst. I didn't actually intend on losing weight at the beginning of my journey, and I know I'm not alone there. However, my obsessions did lead me to accidentally fall into an energy deficit, which absolutely amplified my obsessive thoughts, restrictive urges, and the overall development of my eating disorder. When I look back upon the early days of my illness, I can now really appreciate that it was upon entering a state of energy deficit that restriction really took sole position in my life. I now consider an energy deficit my biggest relapse threat, and I intend to avoid undernourishing myself, whether that be purposefully or unintentionally, for the rest of my life to protect me from the restrictive eating disorder maintaining cognitions that an energy deficit seems to spark for me and a lot of other people with a genetic predisposition to developing an eating disorder. But yes, to sum that up, I didn't start controlling my food intake and the movement my body performed with the intent of looking like some Victoria's Secret angel. I wasn't so much concerned with aesthetics, rather a perception of control. I think most eating disorder sufferers will resonate with that. Eating disorders aren't really about food or one's body in isolation. They represent a maladaptive means of coping. They anaesthetize painful feelings. My eating disorder behaviours served, ironically, as a safety net. Restricting my food intake gave me this illusion of control. Unfortunately, though, as irony would have it, eating disorders' behaviours took control of me. My loved ones were naturally the first to notice a change in my behaviour and persona. I was becoming withdrawn and deceitful and secretive, and these are traits that occur in complete conflict to those of my genuine personality. I fought with my family all of a sudden, all the time, and I isolated myself from events and any outings that I was presented with the opportunity to attend out of a fear I'd have to consume food I hadn't planned for. I lost touch with everyone who was really close to me. I fell away from normality and my world became consumed by my eating disorder. I stopped being my bubbly self and became a mere shell of the person that I'd always been. I longed so much to return to my usual self. I just felt so profoundly disconnected from her and I was at a complete loss as to how to bring her back. 
My mum decided at the time to take me to see a dietitian, and at the time I was a quote-unquote healthy weight. Probably not for my body, I should say, but according to the BMI chart at least. And after weighing me, the dietitian stated, quote-unquote, well, you don't have an eating disorder because you're a healthy weight. She then passed me a list of meal ideas and sent me on my way. Her words, however, just reverberated inside my brain for the following months and deeply enabled the existing denial that I had that there was even a problem and my obliviousness to the threat that my life was under. I was also so then deterred from asking for help again. Out of this intense fear, I would be further invalidated. And this experience is devastatingly common in the realms of trying to seek support for disordered eating. It seems so absurd to me that in order to receive support and validation for what is a mental illness, that it first has to manifest itself in physical form. I walked away from that consultation just feeling so embarrassed and ashamed for having sought help. I felt subliminally encouraged to get like quote unquote sicker prior to being worthy of help. Retrospectively, I know I had an eating disorder at the time of that first appointment and I was struggling with the very same eating disorder that nearly killed me when I was underweight in that moment in time that I measured a supposedly healthy weight. Eating disorders are mental illnesses, not weight illnesses. And they would still exist if scales didn't. I may very well go off on a tangent here, but I just can't help myself. So according to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, a mere 6% of the eating disorder population is underweight. 6%. I ended up contributing to the very minority of the population that ends up becoming underweight secondary to the use of their eating sort of behaviours. And this is probably the largest contributing reason as to why I ended up being able to access care and validation. But I know from that first experience of having sought help when I was still quote-unquote healthy, according to some arbitrary weight chart, just how devastating and invalidating it is to be suffering immensely mentally only to be dismissed and invalidated in accordance with measuring a certain number on a scale. Our societal and even clinical perception of what suffering looks like in the context of disordered eating is so vastly misconstrued and poses such a serious barrier to seeking treatment and basic validation. It needs to change. You shouldn't have to have your experience go under-recognised and invalidated purely based on a largely irrelevant numerical scale. I had the exact same eating disorder I was eventually hospitalised with as I did when I went and saw the dietitian that day. The difference existed in how my suffering was validated, not the severity or legitimacy of my experience. Anyway, grr, I'll put that tangent aside for the time being. Oh, um, just to add complexity to the development of my eating disorder and most people's eating disorders I should say during the onset of my eating disorder I was so highly praised for the changes that occurred in my body weight and this just reinforced my developing belief system that I was worth more when I was residing in a smaller body I had all this messaging that I perceived to be encouragement to remain entrenched in my newly adopted ways I feel like the overall outcome of my eating disorder would have been different had I received early intervention when I initially sought it That's why I'm so passionate about advocacy, especially with regard to this area. But alas, that just didn't happen, and 
So the months following that first dietitian appointment, my illness really began to grow in intensity. My poor family had to just watch me decline at home, during which time my eating disorder took control. Everything became really hostile as I fought with my loved ones literally daily. I began to have physical stability that started to waver and I was made to see a psychiatrist specialising in eating disorders. I'll never forget the day anorexia nervosa escaped the lips of the doctor I was seeing or the tears that followed from both mum and I. We all kind of knew I had an eating disorder at that point, but something about a diagnosis being written on paper made it so clinical and solidified its presence in all of our lives. And it was just really, really scary. Things kind of snowballed and I was a vacant version of my former self. I don't really have clear memories from this time in late 2018 or 2019. Everything is kind of blurry. I do remember we did go on this massive holiday as a family during a time that I was so unwell and despite seeing the most incredible parts of the world, the whole experience was just tainted by my illness and the emotional vacancy that I had. I will never forget the morning that my mum and I woke up. We had a fight over food and that was becoming a daily occurrence. And then my mum decided to take me to the doctor. And I wasn't actually allowed to leave that appointment that I attended that morning and instead was sent to the hospital for what would be my first admission to regain medical stability and become re-nourished. Now for context, the management of eating disorders from a medical perspective does have to take treatment precedence because obviously preserving your life does have to pose as the ultimate priority and it can take some time, longer than you'd imagine. My first admission to hospital was 12 weeks in duration. That's what medical admissions aim at restoring though, just your medical stability. They don't tend to have any psychological intervention and in not in, like in the context of psychiatric admissions, for example. So often you leave hospital alive and in a far superior state to that of how you arrived, but your cognitions remain somewhat unchallenged. And as you'd understand, it's very difficult to make any lasting progress towards healing from a mental illness when it's only ever treated from a clinical, physical perspective. At this point in my journey, things got rather monotonous. I live semi-rurally in Australia and being an adolescent at the time, I didn't have access to a suitable specialist eating disorder facility. I found it impossible to access specialist care in my local area that was capable of treating my eating disorder. And I fell into a debilitating cycle where I gradually became too unwell to be safely cared for in the community, only to be hospitalized in a medical setting with no psychological intervention, nasogastrically refed and discharged to restart the whole progress process. Until the age of 18, and that was when I was finally old enough to use my private health insurance to access specialist adult eating disorder treatment, I cycled in and out of hospital without ever making genuine progress towards a lasting recovery. And this period of my life was so, so bleak. We tend to focus a lot on the physical ramifications that you develop from an engaging in eating disorder behavior, but I actually think it is the mental repercussions that you suffer from sustaining an eating disorder that are the most soul-destroying. You experience symptoms of illness that go so far beyond the surface-level ones you associate with disordered eating. 
I was utterly personalityless and vague. I was apathetic, short-tempered. I was mentally vacant. I didn't have any hobbies at the time because my attention span was absolutely mediocre and I lacked any physical strength or even the medical permission to engage in outdoor recreation. I remember I couldn't so much as hold a conversation at the time because I just became lost and absent-minded. I missed the end of high school despite having previously loved study and I had intended my whole high school career to study medicine postgraduately, but I was just too unwell. I thought about food all the time. I became detached from relationships and normality. I lost my purpose and my passion to exist. I lived an absolute slave to my eating disorder. Everything I did was calculated and scheduled and intricately planned. It was miserable. So whilst I lacked access to specialist services at this time, which definitely contributed to why I didn't see a lasting recovery, this wasn't the main factor as to why I didn't see a lasting recovery. I also didn't see improvements because, quite frankly, I didn't really want to be helped at the beginning of my eating disorder. I was kind of swooped up by the novelty of it all, which sounds completely absurd, I'm aware, because it was tearing my life to shreds. But for so long, I derived this day-to-day, moment-to-moment, fleeting yet addictive euphoria from depriving my body of nutrients. I sought comfort under the illusion I was in control and that suppressing my body weight made me somehow safe. Major spoiler alert here. The behaviours you use to give yourself a sense of safety in the context of disordered eating are the unsafest of actions you could possibly be performing. So long as you're engaged in disordered ways, your eating disorder is the only entity that's genuinely safe and your authentic self is under serious threat. You're protecting the peace of your illness at the potential cost of your life. I did get some support and repetitive weight restoration at this stage and it is because of that that I can say with genuine certainty that you can be made to gain weight as an individual with an eating disorder You can also have your behaviours forcefully interrupted and your compulsions challenged, but you cannot be made to genuinely recover. If that were the case, the complex nature of recovery wouldn't exist and individuals would be cured in no time at all. You actually have to be the primary agent of change in your recovery if you wish to make genuine progress. I only performed well in inpatient treatment settings at this time because I had no choice but to consume food, gain weight, and interrupt my movement compulsions. But of course, because I wasn't the main agent of change in my recovery, the moment I arrived home from being hospitalised without psychiatric intervention, I resorted to old ways of coping and fell into the same exact behavioural patterns that landed me in hospital to begin with. But at the age of 19, finally, finally people, I embarked on real recovery for good. And I owe the longevity of my motivation and commitment to recovery to two key things. The first being access to specialist care that I received. However, the second and the most important was the fact that I developed a deep, deep frustration towards my eating disorder and all the life I had sacrificed, opportunities I'd missed and potential that I'd stifled to preserve my illness. During this particular period of my life, the peers that I accompanied through high school were having gap years, they were travelling, they were embarking on tertiary education and chasing their dreams. 
the novelty that I initially sought from my illness had well and truly worn off and I began to grow tired of my groundhog hell on earth day-to-day reality. I started to gain an all-consuming sense that I was missing out on living. My eating disorder saw me lie to the people I loved. It had me abandon my values, my passions, my intentions, my interests, my sense of self. Mentally, emotionally, and physically, I was all but dead. And do you know what? I just became utterly fed up with my illness and the shrunken life I was leading. And I had never been more angry towards something in my existence. And this, my friends, is what mostly fueled my inspiration to change. It dawned on me at the age of 19, after a few years with my eating disorder by my side, that the world doesn't stop revolving when you're sick. It doesn't stop and wait for you to catch up when you're finished. The universe keeps plodding, evolving and moving forward regardless of how monotonous your days prove to be. It dawned on me that I lost my youth to illness. Instead of exam halls, I had hospital walls. When my peers graduated, I was fretting an increased meal plan. I spent three consecutive Christmases in hospital. My favourite time of year spent confined to four walls of a treatment facility. I was a prisoner, and not just of hospitals, but of my own mind. My eating disorder was robbing my life right in front of my eyes. So I decided enough was enough. I was never going to feel ready to recover. I was never going to feel as though it was the perfect time to abandon the behaviours that gave me a false sense of security. And it was never going to feel right. I could either continue pursuing the same elusive sick ideal that I had for years that was making me miserable, or I could actually start pursuing the life of my dreams. I knew I owed it to myself to sacrifice my contorted sense of control just to see what happened. I knew my eating disorder would always be there, ready and willing to welcome me back into its confinement should I really want to go back. But I just needed to realign with my values for a change rather than my fears and devote myself to actually getting better. It was a somber prospect, but I knew my eating disorder would be the death of me sooner or later if things remained the same. So I thought, what on earth do I have to lose? Things really can't get much worse than they already are. My will to live is non-existent and I have no spark in my eyes. Don't I owe it to myself just to try recovery, just to see if it can bring a fuller life into fruition. And if it can't, well then I can always go back to my eating disorder. So, 18 months ago, I checked myself into hospital to engage in an inpatient eating disorder program. Up until this point in my journey, I'd only ever been hospitalised against my will in an involuntary refeeding and restabilisation setting. Never before had I demonstrated accountability towards my own healing. Never before had I actively, excuses aside, sought a full recovery. And never before had I been the primary agent of change in my recovery. I knew I was embarking on what would be the battle of my life, and it shook me to my absolute core. But I just knew that I either get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable or resign to the painstaking existence, if you can even call it that, that my eating disorder permitted. And this is when the hard work really started. A voluntary inpatient eating disorder recovery environment is completely different to an involuntary one. I was with a group of like-minded, motivated, kind, and all so courageous people with a common goal, to recover. And it was testing. Actually, 
That doesn't even begin to describe the challenges that we faced. It was excruciating. I sobbed into more meals than I can even count. I felt unfathomable anxiety. I wanted to discharge myself daily, actually multiple times a day. And being a voluntary patient meant my rights and autonomy over my treatment remained intact. And my eating disorder was so deeply intimidated by this. I had the ultimate control over my recovery for the first time. I was the primary agent of change. I was seeking out eating disorder recovery and healing and my illness despised it. I was choosing recovery rather than it being forced upon me. And I felt indescribable guilt. I was petrified. I felt like I'd made my eating disorder up and that I was a fraud. I felt like a waste of space and time. But I slowly learned that these were all feelings initiated by my eating disorder to encourage me to drop out of treatment and quit recovery and carry on being dictated to by my illness. And I was not about to go back to that life. I remained inpatient for some time, over which I was steadily exposed to foods and rest fears that I gradually became somewhat desensitized to. During this time, I also underwent transcranial electromagnetic stimulation, which is a type of non-invasive brain stimulation, and that really improved my mood and repetitive destructive thought patterns. I had round-the-clock support that my recovery required at that time, and I used it to my recovery's advantage rather than fighting it. I assembled a multidisciplinary team that I could work with as an outpatient, and I set in place treatment goals I could continue striving towards in the community that would offer me the best chance at a long-standing recovery. And after some time inpatient, I discharged into an outpatient day program, and when I graduated from that, I embarked on recovery from my eating disorder at home, and that same recovery has remained steady to this day. Okay, so I realise I said the hard work really started when I went voluntarily to hospital, but I suppose that was slightly inaccurate. I think the hard yards truly started when I was an outpatient and all of a sudden responsible for my recovery in the community for the first time. I had to start to appreciate that every action I performed that gave me the illusion that I was in control actually served to be the reason I was inherently out of control. I had to put into action the tools I'd learnt to adopt in times of anxiety and desperation in hospital at home. I had to start performing the precise opposite action to what I was compelled to perform and actually start rewiring my brain actively to no longer view food and rest and adequate nourishment as threats to my safety and rather protectors of my safety. I learned during the early stages of being at home that a lot of my traits that I used to sustain my eating disorder could actually be harnessed to instead instead sustain my recovery and do my healthy self-justice. I was determined, perfectionistic and obsessive, which my eating disorder took advantage of and used it to remain in control of me. But I learned I was capable of using these character traits, which often eating disorder sufferers possess, to my recovery's advantage. I kind of grew to appreciate I had gone to absolute hell and back to sustain my eating disorder and that if you do have what it takes to sustain an eating disorder, you absolutely have what it takes to fight for recovery. And the months that I was first at home were really, really challenging. I don't often feel it's 
expressed just how guilt-inducing it is to fight your eating disorder cognitions. Without Those without lived experience just cannot grapple with the concept of feeling guilty for nourishing your body. But having an eating disorder really does make you profoundly guilty in the instances you choose to challenge its dictation. I think that's one of the biggest obstacles I faced. It was learning to sit with discomfort and acknowledging that it naturally passes with time and that you don't have to quickly act in a disordered fashion so as to experience fleeting relief because this fleeting relief only serves to reinforce your faulty neural wiring and perpetuate your suffering in the long term. I also gained an immense appreciation for the concept of needing to repetitively expose myself to anxiety listening experiences so as to gradually desensitize myself to them. Um, In a perfect world, you could expose yourself to something that made you really anxious once and then that be all the evidence you need that it's not an inherently anxiety-inducing or threatening situation. But that's just not the world we live in, unfortunately. So upon reintroducing challenging foods or situations, I would need to repeatedly challenge whatever it was in particular over and over, more times than you'd think. Um, Sometimes that looked like challenging the same breakfast for weeks on end until a time came I finally didn't feel like the sky was going to cave in upon eating it. And my recovery still looks similar like that to some degree. Um, I just have to really repeat things and prove to myself over time, gain this bank of experience to prove my cognitions and my fears and everything wrong and prove to myself that I really can do exactly what I'm petrified of doing. I also think at the beginning of recovery, I had a lot of novelty and excitement with simultaneous apprehension around the things I was reintroducing because a lot of the foods and a lot of the experiences that I was exposing myself to, I'd seen as forbidden for so long. And so they were quite novel to suddenly have technically unlimited access to. Yes. Also, upon discharge from hospital, I started working with an eating disorder specialising psychologist for the first time in my life. And I started engaging in cognitive behavioural therapy enhanced, which is a therapy that is targeted at eating disorders and it has been incredible for me. I had seen psychologists in the past, but they'd never had a great deal of experience with eating disorders. So whilst they were so amazing, they didn't quite challenge my cognitions in the way that they needed to be. Sometimes it literally feels as though my psychologist is in my head. (laughs) She is absolutely phenomenal and it's so hard to articulate what it's like to have someone that can understand your disordered way of thinking and challenge it whilst being compassionate at the same time. So I really, really value that and if that's one thing that I can say I owe a lot of my recovery to, it's it's finally having access to cognitive behavioural treatment that targeted my cognitions and all of my fears. And so I guess that leads me to today. Uh, Like I mentioned very candidly at the start of this pod, I am not fully recovered just yet. Recovery is still a commitment I make daily, but it is a commitment I'm very much devoted to. I still face challenges and I still have my own goals in place to continue progressing on the road to healing. 
I have sat at a place of relative health and stability with regard to previous versions of myself for some time now, but I'm finally acknowledging the calls of my body and my soul and the natural progression I think needs to occur with regard to my physical body and my mental restoration to offer me the most lasting chance of freedom. So at the moment, I'm dedicated to further restoring weight to my biologically predetermined set point beyond this place of relative health. And I'm also working to obviously further demolish the limiting belief systems that my eating disorder disorder bestows upon me and uses to obviously restrict me. I do have the tools in my toolkit now to deal with the general ups and downs of life without turning to old maladaptive ways of coping like I did in the past. And I haven't made it to the final fully recovered destination. However, I can say with the utmost confidence that my spark has returned, my essence has been restored and I'm living and not merely surviving. I'm becoming high on life again. Okay, so in previous years, I'd lasted mere weeks between medical admissions, and I recently celebrated my first year anniversary from any eating disorder treatment facility. And that is the longest time I've spent free from a hospital setting since I was only a teen. And you know what? I am so freaking proud of me. This past year has been so rocky, I will not lie, I've learned recovery is not linear, and although it's a dreamy concept to envisage, your healing trajectory doesn't always travel toward growth. Recovery really is a matter of two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes it strides forward, and then other times it strides back. But hey, okay, prepare for the incoming cheese. It's the journey that matters and not the destination. (laughs) I have had lapses, and from then... I have learned the faults that existed in my initial recovery foundation and have used those lapses to strengthen my healthy self. Okay, so I'm about to launch into what is probably the most important point I'll make in this whole podcast, and that is that in my experience, there is only one recovery prerequisite, and that is that you are the agent of change initiating your healing and that you are the primary agent reclaiming your life and your absolute right to live free from disordered dictation. Hospital did not cure me and with regard to my journey as a whole it represented ground zero of my recovery. Hospital in essence is not inherently healing. My real authentic recovery happened as an outpatient and is continuing to happen as an outpatient when every day it is up to me to remain committed to my refusal to live in alignment with my disorders values over my own. Spending time as an inpatient is not a recovery prerequisite. There aren't any validation prerequisites or hallmark, quote-unquote, sick enough eating disorder experiences. Majority of eating disorder sufferers are never underweight, they never spend time in hospital or tick other stereotypical boxes assigned by society that align with the concept of disordered eating. I don't want to make it seem like hospital was easy or, yeah, the easy way out. Because honestly, if it were up to me to curate my idea of a perfect life, I would never ever undergo inpatient treatment. I don't want to deter people from seeking the help that they may require that may very well come in the form of hospitalisation. But at the same time, I certainly do not want to glamorise the ordeal or make it out to be a guaranteed deliverer of a lasting recovery. The only reason I speak to my experience with hospitalisation, particularly the final one of my journey, 
with such appreciation is because it symbolized the moment in my recovery where I became the active engager in the process. My decision to commit to inpatient treatment serves as the moment my journey in my journey where I pivoted from rejecting the recovery mentality to embracing it. And I think this is the moment in time that defines recovery for so many people. And of course, it looks completely different for everyone. It can take place under any and all circumstances, regardless of how long you've been fighting, whether or not you're possessive of a diagnosis, how quote-unquote severe you subjectively view your illness to be, or whether the, or not the world recognises your suffering. It's the moment in which, despite being overwhelmed with fear and trepidation, you decide to actively take back your life and everything your eating disorder holds captive. This is when you reclaim your right to live in freedom. There aren't any external experiences that will alone guarantee your recovery. You, have, you can have all the intervention in the world and still never find freedom because ultimately freedom relies upon dedication from your soul. Oh, and I feel like now is the appropriate time to invite this fact to the table. There is absolutely no such thing as sick enough, nor is there an experience that will finally elicit such a feeling within you. This not sick enough yet narrative is a preservation mechanism employed by your eating disorder. One Waiting to feel sick enough will have you excruciatingly waiting with your eating disorder by your side forever. You will sacrifice your health, your energy, your time, your life and everything trying to gain approval from a disorder that has no intention of ever deeming you worthy of recovering from it. The cyclical cycle of trying to live up to the quote-unquote sick enough ideal will only serve to see you regress mentally and physically without ever providing you the validation you're so desperately seeking. Sick enough doesn't exist. And left to your disordered devices, you will exist perpetually under the illusion you aren't or never were sick enough. And remember this, I know it sounds completely somber, but only a sick mind desires a sick life. Attempting to ascertain a degree of perceived to be superior sickness is a symptom of sickness in itself. No healthy person is compelled to get closer to death before gaining permission to live. I realise the competitive nature of eating disorders and that's why I've been exceedingly cautious in how I recollected my experience. I don't want to further enable comparison or give strength to the false notion that the validity of your suffering is represented in how your body looks or your diagnosis or how long you've been ill or the experiences that you've gone through. I feel like I just have to stop right now and just beg you. This is me. This is me begging you. Please, please don't put off recovery. Please don't wait. Please don't reserve your permission to recover for a time that you've ticked all your eating disorders boxes. Please don't wait to lose weight or to require hospitalization or to suffer for a long, prolonged period of time or for other supposedly validating experiences to occur. There is no moment in time that you will be more deserving of recovery than you are right now you will just you will die waiting for recovery to feel right and you don't have to be stereotypically sick for your eating disorder to pose a threat to your life so long as you're living under disordered dictation your life is at risk so long as you're facing any eating disorder cognition under the sun you are worthy of healing and there is no such thing as a experiential recovery prerequisite Alright, so I intend on dedicating an entire episode 
to what specifically is helping me in terms of the day-to-day recovery process and my motivation and accountability. So I won't explore them too much right now, but I do really want to share a recovery incentive that really fuels my healing and my continued passion to live on suppressed. So over the course of my journey, as often eating disorders would have it, I was carrying far too heavy of an emotional and physical burden to engage in normal life goings on like work and study. Prior to entering recovery last year, my work and study life was inconsistent and largely engaged in completely passionlessly. <laughs> I remember my psychologist once asking me what my one of my main recovery goals was and I stated just to live a humble little existence. <laughs> I absolutely craved normality. I wanted to be stressed about school and not some meal plan. I wanted to have a job and to feel purposeful. I wanted bills to pay and little routines. And I'm aware I'm sounding wildly lame right now, but I just desired simplicity. So in the early days of my recovery, I had to have my recovery as my number one commitment to ensure that it was fundamentally secure prior to me building my life on top of it. But as I recovered weight and physical health restored and I tackled food rules and simple things like eating publicly that were really challenging for me and I could continue eating and living with flexibility, then I was finally able to build my life beyond my eating disorder. I went back to work. I started studying part-time to give my newfound clarity of thought a chance to blossom And I witnessed my life grow alongside my body. It is still a really, really daunting process. as Not as daunting as it was in the beginning, but it's still a daunting process to be watching my reflection evolve in front of my eyes as I'm restoring health. And it is still really challenging. But the fact that I'm finally seeing changes that I desire in my life take place... It is just so inspiring and giving me so much more trust in the process and incentive to keep going. I really, really learned that by keeping my body small, that my life was shrinking to compensate. I realized that I could live small, purposeless and passionless in a body of my eating disorders dreams if I really wanted to remain suppressed and ill. But oh my goodness, if the cost of being actually able to live in alignment with my values and dreams means residing in a body that's larger than what my eating disorder idolizes, then I know what avenue I'd rather travel down. And I hope I haven't alluded to the idea of recovery being all sunshines and rainbows because holy moly, it is so far from that and I am not done yet. Recovery is so, so unfathomably uncomfortable sometimes. In fact, it relies upon you being in discomfort because discomfort is the only proof you have that you're moving beyond your eating disorder's comfort zone. Recovery is a slow and painful process, but, and this is something I repeat to myself daily, quitting doesn't speed it up. And something really pertinent to remember is that eating disorder discomfort holds the potential to be chronic and enduring, and recovery discomfort is painful, but at least it has an end point. It won't always be as difficult as it is in the moment that you're trying to survive through. I'm at the stage now that my eating disorder has shrunk with regards to its dominance in my life. And since embarking on recovery, my life has absolutely flourished. I missed out on so many normal coming of age kind of experiences whilst I was ill. 
but I feel like I'm finally making up for what I missed. I have so much more headspace and my world is evolving. Not thinking about food all the time is inexplicably valuable. I have room for passion, hobbies, interests and so much life that I didn't have and I haven't had since pre my eating disorder. My personality isn't hijacked by my eating disorder and therefore I'm no longer hostile to be around. I threw food at my mum quite often and I'm disclosing that to demonstrate just how mentally hijacked you become when you're sustaining an eating disorder. My sense of self and personality is finally being re-established and alongside being rewarded a sense of purpose beyond my mental anguish, this has been my most motivating of recovery incentives to experience. I'm reconnecting with all the aspects of my life that I abandoned to live suppressed and I'm relearning what it truly feels like to have fire in my soul again. Once again, that was so cheesy, but totally warranted. (laughs) I'm studying a Bachelor of Biomedicine at university now, and wow, um, you wouldn't believe how much more enthralling university is when you can stare at your laptop screen without being preoccupied about making sandwiches or a need to get up and move around. It is a wildly amazing experience to be able to read journal articles and engage in class and feel immersed in study. And I'm actually enjoying myself now. I mean, minus the COVID-implicated aspects, um, lol. But I didn't think that this was at all possible when I was unwell. I'm also super passionate about mental health, which I owe to my, my lived experience with it. But I'm also passionate about general health care, education and advocacy. And I'm drawn to maybe adopting a clinical role in future within the realms of health. And I don't know if that will be maybe as a doctor or maybe a dietitian. I'm not sure yet. I also love creating content online and inspiring people of all ages to follow the call of their soul. And I love, I love appearing as an eating disorder advocate. I'm definitely exploring what it is to pursue passion in this world. And although it feels like a little bit daunting, it's super exhilarating. And I'm just really consciously creating a joy-filled existence and so the silver lining I see my eating disorder to be wrapped in is the fact that my eating disorder did change me fundamentally as a person but for the better the essence of my strength from this journey will always be with me and I now sense a deep passion to take the role of the person I needed whilst navigating my eating disorder and other mental health battles I needed someone to be of hope I was desperate to feel less alone and that I wasn't falling behind in life. So regardless of the fact that I'm still openly navigating my own journey, I'm pursuing that newfound call of my soul. My experience opened my eyes to so many of life's opportunities and gifted me with a sense of unwavering appreciation for the smallest things. I don't know, I feel like being faced with your own mortality and living such a prolonged duration of time in such immense pain kind of has that effect. I tend not to sweat the small stuff so much anymore and I have a really profound sense of self. I think my experiences kind of forced me to grow and gave me this sense of maturity that's somewhat uncommon among people in a similar stage of life to me. I feel like I've been on my deathbed more or less. And note, I'm saying this because, I mean, having an eating disorder is inherently life-threatening. I'm not saying this that I was on my deathbed to try and portray how sick I've been, rather demonstrate the fact that All eating disorders are so serious, life-limiting, and a threat to your existence. 
So anyways, like I said, I now feel like I've been faced with my own death. And at the time, so when my disorder was in control, I was worried that I was going to die having never really lived. Because that's the reality you're faced with as an individual with an eating disorder. I was deeply afraid of dedicating my life to pleasing my destructive mind and therefore living without any heartfelt intent. I was devastated that I hadn't spent more quality time with the people I loved and that made me feel like sunshine on the inside. And I cherished the time I spent laughing with the people I loved. I cherished the travel I'd undertaken and the wonderful experiences I'd had. I kind of learned that your body is the very last thing you consider when you're faced with your mortality. Literally, it's so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. And that was such an eye-opening experience and one I intend to live in honour of forever. I know I cherish people, adventure, happiness and advocacy above all elements of my existence. So I'm living in service of those and not my fears. I'm now focused on prioritising my peace, reconnecting with the people my eating disorder pushed me away, away from. And I'm relearning what it is that fuels my fire. I've also learned that helping others really, really, really helps me help myself. I first started empowering when I decided I needed a safe place online that I could seek refuge from my mind. I needed to be motivated to continue pursuing recovery. And so I started writing what I needed to read and everything kind of blossomed from there. I began curating a space that was safe for people to come and refuge from their destructive minds when suffering from eating disorders and other mental health issues. And my passion to be of light and hope to those that feel like they have nothing to live for has only grown exponentially since. I hope that empowering and this podcast can be a place that you can come and gain a sense of peer support and camaraderie and encouragement to overcome your destructive mind. I want to be the person that you can walk alongside that can offer light and hope and understanding and connection and not as someone who has completely recovered themselves, rather someone who can simply say, I hear you, I feel you, and although it doesn't seem like it right now, there really is hope and things can get better. The most profound factor in why I'm sharing my story is the fact that lived experience unites us. I have been waiting a little while to really start exploring advocacy adventures because I really wanted to make sure I was in an ethical place to do so. And now I just feel so happy and purposeful and alive. And I know it's finally time that I can harness my own pain and transform it into power whilst encouraging others to do the same. So let's do it. Let's be recovery companions. Let's channel the essence of our strength from this journey. And let's just blossom together. So please. Join me every Wednesday and be prepared to be delivered genuine, candid conversation around mental and physical health, wellness, eating disorder recovery, self-compassion, healing and empowerment. Let this be a place we truly harness our own pain and turn it into power.